0: I'm Mark Matthews, host of Perspectivity, a podcast where we aim to cultivate wisdom with stories and science. In today's episode, I have the pleasure of sharing with you an interview that I conducted with a man named Damon just outside of the Washington, D.C. area. Damon has an absolutely incredible story. You're going to hear about what it's like to grow up as an adopted person who then decides to cultivate a relationship with their biological parents. You're also going to hear about what it was like to grow up black in an intentionally integrated community, a community where it wasn't that crazy to have friends of different races and of different backgrounds, and how that shaped him, especially when he later decided to attend an HBCU in college. And you're also just gonna hear from someone who is genuinely passionate about helping other people share their stories. You're gonna see tears You're going to experience someone who is genuinely connected to what they're doing in life. And you're just going to be able to grow alongside Damon as he walks us through his life journey. I hope you enjoy this
1: episode as much as I enjoy conducting this interview.
0: Um, Could you just say your name and maybe where you're from?
1: Sure. I'm Damon Davis. I am from Silver Spring, Maryland. I was born in Baltimore and raised in Columbia, Maryland. Wow. Awesome. Okay. So we're going to try to walk through your life as if it was a story.
0: Sure. So imagine some amazing writer, maybe even yourself, <laughs> sat down, went through, wrote a book, and then we're gonna open that book up and this is the life of Damon. Yeah. And so I guess when we start that story, if we went kind of towards the beginning, maybe before you even open it up, what do you think the introduction to
1: your story would say? <laughs> it's funny to hear you ask this question because I have quite literally written a book of my life and so I had to think about this from that very perspective. How do I want a reader to understand my story? And I'll start you off the same way that I start off the book, with the story of my birth and adoption, because they are key to who I am. So I was born in Baltimore, Maryland, to a young mother who had gotten pregnant accidentally, and she didn't realize how challenging it was going to be to be a single mother. And she said, I need help. And so she ended up moving to Baltimore, getting on social services, and I was born at a Baltimore hospital. I raised that piece of the story because she had made an adoption plan for me, which meant I was not going home with her from the hospital. It also meant that the hospital staff knew I was not going home with her. So there was none of that this child, this here's your baby, and place it on your chest, right? And you get to bond with this child. The mother gave birth via cesarean section, and the baby was taken away, destined for adoption. So this whole thing that you get with a baby bonding with the mother didn't happen. And, and that's an important component to think about when you think about what it means to be adopted. There's trauma, a tragedy, a bad situation that happened. And then a child is available for adoption, which means that there's parents that can now take that child home. So I that's how I start my story is I'm an adoptee. I had a wonderful adoption, thankfully. So I grew up in Columbia, Maryland. My parents were a young couple out of Kansas City, Kansas with my dad and Kansas City, Missouri was my mom. And they moved to Columbia and they had some trouble conceiving. And unfortunately, uh, they never were able to have a baby. And so they decided to adopt a child. And I got super lucky. My parents were incredible. Uh, My mother, Veronica, was light-skinned black woman. My dad, Willie, is a dark-skinned black guy and I'm in the middle. So as an adoptee, we look like family which is an important thing because there are adoptees who are transracially adopted and they don't look like their family. And so they may feel a lot of love. They may have a lot of acceptance and connectivity to their family. But if you look at the family portrait on the wall, you can clearly see that if you are an Asian person in a white family, if you're a black child in a white family, if you're a Latino child in some other family, you don't look like your family. I got lucky. You know, we had a homogenous family. And I was told early on that I was adopted. So I was really fortunate that I grew up with the knowledge that I was adopted because a lot of adoptees don't. And it can be a rude awakening. I'm sure you can imagine if you're thinking through what your family structure is and then suddenly your parents sit you down one day and say, Listen, I need to tell you, you have another mother out there and you're like 13 or. You discover after your parents have passed away that there's some secret birth certificate in a file in their attic. And you've discovered that your birth date is on this birth certificate with some other child's name. It starts to clue you in that you may be adopted. So I was very lucky that I grew up with the knowledge that I was adopted. Um, I had a wonderful upbringing in Columbia, Maryland. It's a, a planned community it's very intentionally socioeconomically integrated, racially integrated, and it was a wonderful environment. They purposefully put bike paths through all the neighborhoods. You could get through every single neighborhood and many neighborhoods connected to each other without ever riding your bike on the road. Uh, I was a latchkey kid. You know, I was born in, the, in 1972, and uh, my mom, after my parents divorced, was a single mom. I was a latchkey kid and I would come home and I was totally responsible for myself. And it was a wonderful upbringing. My mom kept me in soccer and my dad put me in tennis and I had a whole bunch of, you know, different experiences at day camp in the summer. It was just a really really wonderful upbringing. So that those were my early days, you know, before going to high school and all of that stuff. I picked up more soccer, I started playing lacrosse. And I just had a a wonderful childhood in Colombia. I couldn't have asked for anything more, honestly. Thank you for sharing that.
0: That's really, I want to double click on the planned environment Mm -hmm. that you grew up in because that's something that I don't think a lot of people would think about their city or area that they grew up in being strategically planned the way yours was. And so, can you tell us a little bit more about?
1: When you were growing up, did you know that this was planned? I did. It was sort of common knowledge. So to give history on Columbia, and Columbia has a sister city in Northern Virginia. I it, I wanna say it's Roslyn, but I'm not positive that that, I don't think that's correct. But the Rouse Company was a development company that bought farmland out in Howard County, Maryland, and just was going to develop it. And what ended up happening was, they decided that they wanted to create a community that should be emblematic of what the world should look like. It should have an interracial mixture of people living side by side with each other. It should have an, a socioeconomic mixture of people of various income strata living near each other and shopping at the same places and the schools should be integrated and things along those lines. And it was, it was really fascinating to see how that played out for the children, because one of the things that happened for me was I didn't even think about race when I was growing up. It just didn't occur to me. And I think that is due in partial credit to the fact that I lived in such a diverse community. There were Asian children and white children and black children all playing together. My best friend when I was a kid was a little white guy named Scott. And coincidentally, as I got a little bit older, my second best friend was another little white guy named Scott. But um, we had, you know, just wonderful times. It was, it was interesting because as a child, you don't realize that the adults have come together to create this plan for how this community will, will live together. And the adults have situated themselves in neighborhoods that work for them, for their socioeconomic status or what have you but it was integrated. So like I'm running across the street to Scott's house all the time and I'm on my bike and I'm going up the road to Marcus's house and I'm going down the street to, you know, Melissa and Carrie's house and I'm over towards Todd and Keith's house. Like there's just a whole array of people around me and all of those people I just named are different colors and different ages and all kinds of stuff. Like it was just a really cool mix of of people. And, and it translated into sports. My soccer teams, I had a, a mix of people. Um, there were some things that were sort of predominantly white, like that was the, that's the world we live in. And here in Maryland, there are just communities that are like that. And it did happen that there was uh, sort of preponderance of white folks in our communities. But in general, like I felt very accepted in every room that I walked into and in every sort of experience that I had. It was rare. And it was usually when we left Columbia that I was more sensitized to race-related things. I remember one time we went to, uh, we I played lacrosse. We traveled to the middle of Virginia. And, you know, lacrosse is predominantly white guy sport. And uh, there were some racial slurs and things that happened in the in that lacrosse game way down there. And I can remember some of our football players talking about traveling to a part of Northern Maryland. And most of our football team was black guys. And this is a predominantly white community that they traveled to. And they had some racial slurs slung at them in the middle of the game. And so again, it was just, it was usually when we left Columbia that we were reminded that the world is a completely different place than what it feels like to grow up in this intentionally integrated community.
0: Wow. Uh, So this is shocking to me, honestly, because I've never even heard of an intentionally integrated community. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's inspiring me because hearing you talk about this makes me wonder, is this something that could be done across America? And and I'm curious, do you think just from your perception, it's a big question, but do you think that what the story of Columbia Mm that you experienced, do you think that story could be used to help other areas of America start to become more more open, more accepting?
1: I think so. Um, I think it's got its pluses and its challenges. And I I intentionally didn't say minuses. I think the positives are some of the things that I talked about. I grew up without necessarily focusing on race. Therefore, it was one less thing that I needed to be sort of conscious of and trying to constantly calculate. The challenge I think we have is a little bit of the environment that we live in now. It's incredibly divisive in political circles um, when we talk about economics and, and you know housing shortages and and wage gaps and things along those lines. And it's tough to sort of think through how would you do what was done in the 70s today in our present environment. I think it could absolutely be done. Uh, I think one of the things that allowed it to happen in Howard County was that there was land available between two big cities, Baltimore and Washington, D.C., and so it became this cottage transient community where you could live in Columbia and go to either city, and so that allowed Columbia to flourish, whereas in some other parts of the country, you may have one anchor city and so there's not probably as much option for the the next city that was intentionally built to have two possible outlets for the the residents to go to. I'm making this up as I go, but I'm just thinking through like what it would be what would be required to create a city with the intention that was put behind what the Rouse company did.
0: Wow. That's just fascinating. That's just it's capturing me. So, when we look into your childhood, you've mm-hmm. got this childhood where you learned early that you were adopted. Mm -hmm. So it was something that you could start wrestling with. And personally, I won't go into it, but something I can kind of, in a way, I have a commonality with that, which is that I lost my mom when I was eight. Mm. But because I lost my mom when I was young, it was an experience that became normal to me. Mm -hmm. So for my whole life, it felt like this is a normal part of who I am. There wasn't like a breaking point where I was completely crushed and turned around, similar to like you said, about how people will, when they find out they're adopted at 13 or 14, they have to remake sense of everything else. That's
1: right. Yeah. When you grow up with the knowledge of something, it is your normal, right? That's what I'm hearing you say.
0: Yeah. And that's what it was for
1: me. Adoption was something that my parents talked about and I could ask about. And my mom quite literally told me, if you ever decide you want to search for your biological mother, I'll help you. And I was like, okay, cool, but it's funny because I grew up perfectly comfortable in adoption as I've said, so I didn't need to find another mother. I don't need two moms. I've got one and she's good, you know what I mean? And and I say that because there are some folks who are challenged in their adoption and that is a trigger for them to decide that they wanna search. Like, why do I not get along with my mom? This is crazy and and the knowledge that they're adopted will then feed their desire to try to find this other person who relinquished them into adoption. So we'll get into a whole bunch of adoption stuff in a while. Wow.
0: Okay. So we're coming through the childhood. Just curious. If you had to title that chapter in your life, <laughs> what would you title it? Maybe you already have. What would you title it now? What comes to you?
1: I think quite literally just Columbia, Maryland. You know, it's, it was really shaped by the city in which I grew up. So Wow.
0: that's beautiful
1: Um, okay so we're walking
0: through that and you mentioned that you had you didn't experience a lot of racism in your community Mm -hmm. but that later those things started to become kind of important or at least you noticed that oh my god outside of this there's this is real this thing that I've heard about right 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 (laughs) it's very real yeah Um, so I guess as you head into like your, your teenage years or you're thinking about that What would you say was like a significant event that kind of sparked that next stage in your life? What event kind of launched you? We have Columbia, (laughs) Maryland. Where did the next kind of chapter start to begin?
1: I think the big transition for me was leaving Columbia and going to college. So as I've said, Columbia was an amazing experience, but my parents, came from black communities in Kansas City, Kansas, and Kansas City, Missouri. And and I think this is probably true for a lot of parents who came to Columbia. They came from a homogenous society wherever they grew up. And the idea of the integration was awesome, but the reality of the integration was eye-opening, right? So my dad, for example, he grew up playing, <laughs> basketball and hanging out with a whole bunch of brothers around Kansas City, Kansas. And my upbringing was completely different. I'm playing soccer with a bunch of white guys and playing lacrosse, right? These are sports that he was totally unfamiliar with. And it's funny, I had a, I had a great story with my dad when I told him I was interested in playing lacrosse. I said, dad, you know, I need some equipment. I'm gonna be trying out for the lacrosse team. And he says, lacrosse? what? What is that? And I said, well, you know, it's a Native American sport. They used to run around the countryside with sticks and a rock, and they would, you know, it was full contact kind of thing. And he said, but Damon, isn't, isn't lacrosse a white boy sport? <laughs> I just bust out laughing because he was coming to this from the place that from where he grew up, right? This is what his experience had been, and these were not things that he could have calculated that his son would be interested in but that was part of a different experience that he and my mom had set out for myself and the other parents in the community had done. So what I decided was because my parents had ingrained experiences growing up in a black community, I wanted to have a more black experience going into college. So I decided that I wanted to attend an HBCU. They sent me on tours of colleges over the summer, and you know the colleges in the summer they're empty but you get to see and feel what the campus looks like and and you can imagine yourself there and i had a wonderful college tour of all through the south and i ended up landing on hampton university that i attended and it was a a funny experience you talk about sort of the the transition that i went through in this part of my life it was funny because I had come from Columbia, Maryland, where I had a whole bunch of friends that were of mixed race, and I didn't think about race in my community, but I knew that I wanted to have an intentionally more Black-focused experience in college. So I go to Hampton. In the fall, everybody shows up at school and they're ready for class. And as I'm standing there on campus, I'm looking around and I'm going, oh my God, every kid here is Black. This is crazy, and it just, it hadn't really hit me that, that this is what it looks like in a black community. I had a wonderful first semester. I go home for my Christmas break and you know, everybody comes home for Christmas. And I'm looking around all my friend group as we're, as we're hanging out together and I'm going, holy crap, most of my friends are white. This is wild. And so I had these two cultural awakenings, both in going to an HBCU and then returning home with an awakening about my own community. That was really, really fascinating. And and I'm glad that I made those choices because it helped me be more conscious and focused of sort of who I am in every environment now. And it's allowed me to traverse multiple environments very easily. I can go into a black community and feel perfectly comfortable and I can go into a predominantly white area and feel perfectly comfortable as well, most of the time. So that's been a really sort of eye-opening part of of how I moved out of Columbia into real life. Wow,
0: I have a question. I actually don't know the answer to this. At an HBCU, are you able to attend if you're white?
1: I think you can, yeah. But I mean, I would have never looked into those rules because it didn't apply to me. (laughs) But I think so, absolutely. So I'll tell you that, you know, there were folks who were international on the tennis team. There were folks who were in the architecture program, I think. So we did have a couple of white students around if I can recall correctly, but it's it was predominantly black because it is an HBCU. So it's a rare person who wants to attend a college that is not focused on something that they're interested in or feel connected to, you know. Yeah.
0: That's really interesting. Do you think any of your um, white friends in, in your community in Columbia ever felt a connection to black culture due to the, the kind of intentionally designed?
1: I think form? so, yeah. Because also what was happening when I was growing up is it was an era of an explosion of hip hop, right? And it had reached commercial viability in a way that was never seen before. And so you had musical artists that had crossed over and done collaborations with white artists. I'm thinking of Run DMC and Aerosmith, you know, like that's two, those are two iconic bands from two very different genres coming together to make something as awesome as Walk This Way. And then you get bands like the Beastie Boys, who created this amazing album that was like the soundtrack to my high school years. And it was totally rap but it's a bunch of white guys doing it you know what i mean and so everybody in our community was experiencing every sort of musical genre i use that as as a proxy for what you're asking uh because the hip-hop culture also had its own sort of clothing that went along with it and its own set of slang and all that stuff and we were all in that mixing pot together so i absolutely think there was connectivity there
0: how do you feel about that experience? Like the idea that especially I've heard a lot of people talk about this and I think it's it's a kind of confusing for some people mm-hmm. about well hey I'm white but I actually feel very tied to black culture. Mm-hmm. Do you think that's good bad like how does that how does that feel?
1: I think it's great. I think there's one thing that I've always or I've recently really honed in on is Empathy. And it's important for us to try to understand and experience someone else's position, right? At least, at least put your mind, wrap your mind around it. And I think about Black forefathers who have gone through racial struggles in this country to allow me to even be at a place where I could attend college, that I could be in a, my parents could move to a mixed race community. There was a lot of struggle that happened before that, but it wasn't black people who went through that struggle alone. There are allies on the same team who were in their circle saying, listen, we need to do something about this. And listen, I I can help you if you just trust me. And so I think it's important for us all to have a connectivity to each other's races. I like to think through things that are related to Latino culture. I like to, you know, the fact that I have been exposed to things that are predominantly white community things. I love that I have been to an HBCU. I think it's important for us to understand what other people have been through. Otherwise you sit in this insular community and think that everything in your own sort of, as you navel gaze, like is awesome when it's not. You're not hearing what's outside of your own circle. And And this is how we all grow together, is by learning from each other and appreciating the fact that we come from different perspectives, right? Like, you didn't know me before yesterday, but you've walked into this black guy's house in Silver Spring, Maryland, and have opened your mind up to what my story is. And that part, I think, is incredible. And I think that a lot more people need to do stuff like that. Open yourself up to the story of someone else and recognize that they've got something to share that you could learn from
0: the exact same way what's a song that brings you joy
1: (laughs) oh my God! what a turn god i could i could go on and on i mean 80s hip-hop is amazing i I wish i had thought about this before you asked it um there was a black eyed peas song that i used to wake up to i should ask my wife what it is um let me come back to that i have to think i wasn't on music when you asked that I know, I do that on purpose. Okay, so
0: we kind of hit this transition point. Just curious, if you had to title your chapter, you know, for going into the HBCU world, experiencing a, a culture, yeah. <laughs> a cultural transition, how what would you title that for you?
1: Something like an Awakening or Eyes Open or something like that. Wow. Yeah.
0: With your new kind of Eyes Open, I'm curious, what... So how did that develop throughout your time there? You've mentioned that you kind of had the awakening, the realization like, oh my gosh, like, wow, this is wild. Like lots of my friends, white. And then all of a sudden I'm at an HBCU. Presumably a lot of friends you're going to make there or, yeah. or not. What happened? How'd that develop? What, what was the result of that awakening?
1: I think more than anything else, as I've said, recognizing what is happening outside of the community of Columbia because what was really cool about Hampton was there were guys like myself my roommate in college Bobby was also from Columbia so he had a similar experience to myself but some of the cats that we hung around with were from the south they were guys there's a guy from Arkansas there was a guy from Pennsylvania um, there's dudes from all over the place we met folks from L.A. and the deep city of New York City. And so you got to hear stories about what people's communities were like, where they came from. And we would trip out on each other's experiences, right? They couldn't believe that I grew up playing lacrosse and like all of the things that we'd experienced in Columbia. And I couldn't believe how, you know, homogenous their community was, but that the culture was so integral to how the community you know, sort of interacted with each other. And it was fascinating to meet folks from Los Angeles who you know, like every environment that you come from and it shapes you a certain way and you could feel how people are, are different from different parts of the country. So I think more than anything else, the awakening helped me sort of recognize that different parts of the country, different communities, even right next to each other can give a person a different feel about life. And this goes back to the empathy that we need to sort of talk to each other about how did you grow up? And and let me tell you a little bit about myself and we can see where there's commonality and where there's differences and how we can learn from each other on that stuff. Wow.
0: The idea of the interrationally planned communities, Mm -hmm. it was amazing, but the reality of it was Mm eye-opening. That was powerful to me that when we actually step into our dreams or an ideal for a better world, it's actually quite overwhelming in Mm -hmm. many ways, not bad or good, but it's a lot to contend with. And so we got to be prepared that when we go to make change, we have to be ready to embrace that Mm -hmm. and actually take on the opportunity as opposed to be afraid of like, this is going to feel different. This mm-hmm. is not going to be comfortable. Yeah. So it's got to be exciting. It's got to mobilize us and we have to like give energy into it. Yeah. Is that what it, is that how you think about it too? Yeah,
1: absolutely. I mean, there none of these things are easy to contend with. You know, there's social determinants of health that are factors in how any society or any community ends up like living a healthier life. And those social determinants are economic. They are built environment. They are education-based. There's all of these things that you have to put into planning a community that are going to be super important for how that community thrives. And and, and, and it's not easy to, to try to calculate that stuff and make it really happen. And I think part of what was awesome about Colombia was it was a, it was able to be built up from a blank slate. They could literally sit down and say, "All right, we've got this land. How are we going to divide it up in ways where lower socioeconomic strata folks are living integrally with folks who have a higher socioeconomic strata, right? That not that they're out on the outskirts and all of the, you know, sort of well-to-do people are living in the middle on the hill or whatever, you know, but that you can have integrated things and you've to try to make sure that folks are going to the same schools and they share the hospital and the grocery stores are in common places, things like that. You know, it's, it's harder to make those changes in existing communities. But I think, you know, as you've sort of asked, how would you do this if you were to plan it out and go forward with another one? I think there's a lot that can be learned from Columbia and the other city is Reston, Virginia. It's not Roslyn, it's Reston. Wow, okay. So what did you study in college? I was a business major. Business? Yeah, My dad was a healthcare management consultant. He, with some partners, started a management consulting firm. And I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I knew that business got him to where he was and that business studies were so malleable. Everything is a business. And so studying business in general would allow me to go into a variety of of different industries. And funny story, so this house used to be my dad's house. We bought it from him when we got married. Coincidentally, his office is that brick building right over there outside the window. And his favorite hangout is right behind that house behind us there. So he used to go from here to there to there to there. He had this triangle that he would go through every single day. So every you know, living in this place, I get like the spirit of my dad and his office over there. And just knowing that Columbia, that Silver Spring is, you know, someplace that he found very dear is, is really kind of kind of cool. Yeah, that is wonderful. What's your favorite thing about your dad? His intelligence and compassion for people and sort of gregarious nature. You know, I know that's three things, but they go hand in hand. Cause you can be gregarious and be a dummy, right? And you can be intelligent, but not sort of empathetic and and be a people person. And he was absolutely that. My dad, his name is Willie Davis. He passed away in 2000, roughly 17, I think. And um, he was just a wonderful guy. He was the kind of guy that you would like when he walked in, he was like, hey, good to see you. What's been going on? And he remembered the last time you talked and he could pull back something and ask you about it. And he, he was able to build rapport with people. And if he didn't know you, you felt like you knew him by the end of a conversation because he would chat with you and ask you those same things and like offer guidance. And if you were down, he would offer a joke or a drink, a cocktail. Like he was just a really powerful sort of -of one-of-a-kind individual who lived life in sort of full color he loved to hang out and meet people he loved to be outside of his house you know you know at bars hanging out just making friends with folks and he had folks all friends all over silver spring in the dc area i mean he just really was a interesting character i think is a good way to put it that's wonderful okay
0: so you go through how many years were you at the hbcu
1: all four. All four went years? in 1990, graduated in 94, went on to graduate school at uh, Loyola College in Baltimore, and studied business again because it was perfect in terms of a transition. And I knew that uh, I wanted to get graduate school done early because I somehow it clicked for me that once I started a family and was on my way professionally, it would be that much harder to go back and complete graduate school. So I just left business school and went straight into graduate school. So. What
0: was your experience like in grad
1: school? It was cool. It was interesting because I was one of the few people in my friend group that went straight to graduate school. And so many of my friends jumped out and started work and I was still studying and I was living at home. And uh, I was one of the youngest people in my graduate school classes because many of them had come back to graduate school after some professional experience. And so it was just an interesting examination of whether one should go straight from college to graduate school or not, because I didn't have a whole lot to offer in terms of actual professional experiences during the conversations. On the flip side, um, there was a lot of discussion of things that were more nebulous. They They were not necessarily things you had to have a business experience to discuss and so I learned a ton. One of my favorite classes was one on sort of negotiation and, uh, and I forgot what it was called. And there was an exercise that has always stuck out, stuck out in my mind. The professor says, all right, I'm going to divide, divide everybody up into two teams. Everybody gets a piece of paper. You've got what you need for this negotiation on your piece of paper. The other team has what they need for their negotiation on their piece of paper. And you're sitting across the table from folks and you're looking at them and you're like, I'm definitely gonna win this, (laughs) right? I'm definitely gonna take this person down. On one piece of paper is you run a business that requires orange peels for whatever the blah, 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 blah is. What you don't know is the person across the table runs a business that requires the orange core or whatever. And so, it was eye opening because we both needed the same thing but two different pieces of it we literally could have gotten 100% of what we each needed had we been open and transparent and had a real communication about what we needed to make things happen and and i i took a lot of lessons from that in being sort of more open and transparent about what you do need i always say if you don't ask you don't get and you know Just telling somebody quite frankly like this is what i need and see what they come back with and then ask them well how come you need that tell me more about why you need that and if you can go through this exploration and figure out what everybody needs um it's it's super helpful for that that kind of communication so that was one of my favorite classes
0: wow that's powerful and what it made me think of is two themes right competition and cooperation. Mm-hmm. And sometimes people see those as opposites. Mm-hmm. Sometimes people see those as two different things. Yeah. I'm actually curious um because I saw the energy you had like and I know you're <laughs> walking back into that yeah. kind of idea of I'm going to take them down. Yeah. Do you like competition? Oh yeah.
1: Absolutely, but I'm not there are competitors who are chest thumpers like I'm definitely going to win this. I'm more of a quiet focus get the victory, and celebrate a little more quietly kind of person. Like, I think of football players like Neon Deion Sanders, right? They're very big, huge personalities. And I'm more... I would prefer to be super consistent over time with a lot of victories going forward that I can celebrate and build on. but not necess- I don't have to have a banner for all of those victories either, you know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. Do you think that competition and cooperation are at odds with each other? No. What do you think when you think about the relationship between those two things?
1: No, I think you can be competitive and cooperative in certain spaces, right? Like, I think there's, um, I think about news channels, for example. You Just because ABC started a news channel doesn't mean CBS shouldn't. They're in competition with each other. But they may have things that they have common goals on. You know, they may want to raise awareness about a certain disease state or raise awareness about some socioeconomic challenge that is out in the community that needs to be addressed. So there's cooperation potential there. And that may not be the best example, but I think you understand what I'm saying, that folks who are just because one competitor is doing something doesn't mean you can't do it too to be supportive of an issue that needs to be addressed. I love that.
0: Absolutely, yeah. I think the same way. I think it's hard sometimes because we can think of examples where people were so dedicated to winning the competition, like your exercise, that they miss the cooperation. Yeah. And I think sometimes that causes us to think, well, we should just have no competition and, and everything should be about cooperation. Yeah. Um, and it's hard, because I, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, it's tough. So, okay, you go through, you've got a ton of business training at, in the university, what, what'd you do next? Hmm. Where, where'd you go with it?
1: It's funny, I went to work for one of dad's friends. So he had a company in the same building where dad had a hangout over here. And uh, he, dad used to hang out in the Golden Flame and z Inc was a couple of floors up and I was one of their data analysts. I did some data entry, it was early computer days and, and we were examining uh, the utilization of energy expenditure at nuclear power plants was one of my first projects it was wild so i'm getting all this nuclear energy data from ferc and some the federal energy regulatory commission and some other places it was fascinating stuff and then i went on to do more data entry and got some some other jobs i worked for dad's company for a while we did some healthcare information management systems development and testing and eventually i got on some irs contracts where i was doing systems software testing for irs systems i went to centers for medicare medicaid services did some work for them and then eventually i left those jobs and i i remember i went back to the irs and i absolutely hated the job that i was going back to but i needed to because we had a young family, my son had been born and I coincidentally had gotten laid off at the time that my son was was being born. And I just, I needed to have a job. I wanted to be a supportive father and, you know, someone who's part of the breadwinning piece of the house. And I went back to that job and I absolutely hated it. And my wife said, she had a great job at the time. She was like, why don't you quit? the Obama administration had just been established. She said, let's see if we can get you a job in the administration. So this was 2008. And it was fantastic because at the same time that my son was born was a time that I had really started to think about my identity as an adopted person. So I'm sitting at home. I've got all the time in the world and I'm caring for my infant son now who's at home. And I'm waiting for this job in the Obama administration. I'm with Seth. And one day he's on the couch. He's laying there in this little onesie. And he's looking up at me. And I'm looking down at him. And I'm wondering, like, who is this kid going to be? This is amazing. And it occurs to me as I'm looking down on his little face, I said, wait a minute. As an adopted person, this is the first biological relative I have ever known in my entire life. And it struck me so deeply that I was like, holy crap, this means that I was someone's for like I, he's the first branch on the tree that I know of. That means I'm a branch on someone else's tree. And I don't know who those people are. I know who my mom and dad are, but I don't know who these people are. And that was a really pivotal moment for me of sort of hovering over this little dude and realizing, there's a whole other family out there that I don't know. And I would really like to figure out who they are. And there were two other pivotal things that happened. One, sort of throughout my life, I've told you I've spoken openly about adoption. And people would say to me, well, do you ever wanna find your real mom? And real mom isn't quite the right term for it because mom is the person who's doing the job. She's there, she's working it. And she was awesome, but Finding your birth mother can be really important and interesting and powerful. And so people would ask me that, and I'd always say no. One of my best friends, Kelly, asked me this question at a time when my adoptive mother had retired from State Farm. She had been there for 20-plus years. And unfortunately, she started to show signs of mental illness. She had paranoid schizophrenia and dementia setting in, and it really made it rough on our relationship. We had a wonderful relationship growing up. But as these mental illness pieces set in, it really put a strain on our relationship. And so Kelly saw what I was going through with my adoptive mother. And she said, you know, this might be a good time for you to try to find your biological mother. Have you ever, have you, do you think about that? And I was like, no, you know, I was <laughs> combating this, this pressure that had been put on me preceding her asking me that. But it did catalyze something in me too. And I'll tell you the third thing that happened, which was my father-in-law came to town. My father-in-law was from the Caribbean. My wife is of Caribbean descent from St. Vincent and the Grenadines. My father-in-law comes to town and he always had an alternative agenda that you never got to know until it was time to leave. He'd say, come on, we're going to see my blah, blah, blah in Baltimore. So he we went to see this distant relative of his in Baltimore. And this elderly woman comes to the door and she's dragging an oxygen tank behind her, and the oxygen thing is over her nose and stuff. And I'm looking at her going, wow, this, she's like in the autumn of her years. And she welcomes us into her home, and she sits us down at the table, and she pulls out you know, a box, and she pulls out an envelope, and she starts passing around pictures and articles. And she's telling my father-in-law, when you were in medical school in New York, your blah, blah, blah friend from St. Vincent was over here. And she would tell my wife, when you were in law school, your brother was doing this. And she had all these artifacts. And she was sewing together the family history like a griot in some African village, right? She had all of the stories. And it occurred to me as I'm watching this woman sew their family history together before us that if any other person had picked up the same artifacts and spread them out on the table, there's no way they could tell the stories the way that she did. And that hit me too, in realizing that if I wanted to search for my biological family, I needed to go ahead and do so because there was a griot in my family that was likely taking these same stories with them to the grave. And I wanted to try to find these stories before they got away. So between losing my adoptive mother and sort of recognizing that it was probably a good time to search, The birth of my son and the recognition that he was my first biological relative I'd ever known in my entire life. And that experience of seeing a family historian share stories that were probably going to escape me if I didn't locate my biological family. Those were the three things that I think really drove me to try to find my biological mother. It's really fascinating. Yeah, that hit me deep. It's it, a lot. It look led... at the tissues, because we're definitely going to go in on this one. It's, <laughs> it's wild. Well, yeah, I
0: appreciate it. It led me to the way, I didn't expect your story, to, your, the reason for your search to come about like that. But it reminded me, growing up without, you know, I lost my mom at eight. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, I got to find my mom. And so I look at it, and throughout my life, I had a whole bunch of different moms. Mm. At every given stage of life, somebody stepped in and played that role. Yeah, be it a teacher, another you know, really kind mother in the community, Mm -hmm. and sometimes you know, friends. Even they filled the gaps and the roles Mm -hmm. as I needed it. And if I didn't have that, that's the thing, right? Where they say it takes a community to raise a child properly. Yeah, yeah, it's like it does, and it can, and at the same time, somebody has to step up and be willing to do that. Mm -hmm. And that's just is beautiful. So okay. We've got, thank you, man. Oh, so we've got this, the search awakens, right? <laughs> tell me, go in,
1: tell me how where we go from here. So again, I'm at home, I'm with my son. He's an infant, so he's, you know, he requires only as much care as an infant does in the small space he's in. So I've got time and I decide that I'm going to try to search, my adoptive mother has told me that I was born in Baltimore City. And I decided to reach out to Baltimore City Social Services to try to get a caseworker. And I was very lucky to get this woman Lee. And at the same time, my adoptive mother had lived in Columbia. She had moved away and come back to Columbia. And unfortunately the mental illness had gotten so bad for her that she and I just kind of stopped talking. It was just easier for both of us to just not be in a battle all the time. And unbeknownst to me, she moved back to Missouri, where she was from. Something she had always said she wanted to do, but she did it overnight, basically, it seems like to me. I walked out to my mailbox one day, and I pulled out a piece of mail around my son's birthday. And it was a birthday card from my mother with a return address in Missouri. And I was like holy crap, she moved away, this is crazy. But that was indicative of how bad her mental illness had gotten for me, too, for her. So I'm at home, I'm with my son, and I realized that I want to try to find my birth mother, but I know that my mom has records from my adoption. So I reached out to her and I called her, and I was nervous, because she had always said that, I could ask her if I wanted to search, would she help me? But now she's not in the same mental space that she was when she said that 20, 30 years ago. So I was nervous about whether she would be able to come through. But when I told her about it, fortunately, she was in a good frame of mind. And she gathered herself to collect all of my adoption records. And she photocopied or sent me originals of stuff. And that set me on my way. I was able to give my social worker Lee, these items and let her know, like, this is the story of my adoption as I know it. And so pardon me, I ended up, uh, Lee has a process for how you search. So first thing is they interview you. They want to know like, what mental frame are you in to even be going on this search? And I reassured Lee, I'm fine. (laughs) I've got two parents I had a wonderful upbringing in Columbia. I've been to college. I've got a job. I'm straight. I don't need anything. I just want to know who these people are that I come from. And when I reassured her of that, she, I guess, approved me to go forward with this reunion journey. And what happens is she goes into the Maryland archives, she pulls back paper records, and she creates a report out of what she sees in the record, because you're not allowed to just hand over the file. The file will have my birth mother's name on it, my birth father's name on it, and I could just go off half-cocked and go find these people myself. So there's a layer of protection and anonymity that is installed that is, you know, for better or for worse, there. It's a block. And Lee creates a report about my adoption, and she indicates that my mother had been a graduate student in Detroit, Michigan. She had gotten pregnant accidentally. When she told the father that she was pregnant, the man was not supportive. And she realized she's in trouble. And that she had come to Baltimore City Social Services to place the child she was carrying for adoption. And it was interesting. I can't think of what they are now, but there were elements of how my birth mother spoke even in this report that was assimilated from another report that resonated with me. I could feel how she was as a person was how I am as a person. It was really wild. And Lee said, I need you to go home, write a letter, introduce yourself. So I did that. And I sat, it was funny, I got the job at HHS and I sat, I I got the job at HHS and I went on this um, interview with Lee and she tells me all of these things that I need to write into this letter and I do so. And I've often joked, like I owe the American people a day of work for, for what I didn't do this day where I sat at the office and wrote this letter to my birth mother. And I told her, you know, I want you to know I'm okay, um, that you made the right decision, and that if you've ever wondered about me, I'm fine. And if you're interested to know me, I would be happy to know you. And I said, but I recognize that this is coming out of nowhere and that you may need some time to sort of wrap your head around my coming back and so I dropped the letter in the mail and I reassured myself I'm not going to keep thinking about this I'm not going to drive myself crazy about trying to find this woman I didn't think about her for 36 years before Seth was born I'm not going to start obsessing over this now they may find her tomorrow they may find her in 10 years I have no idea I'm not going to worry about it drop the letter in the mail I literally smacked my hands and said, I'm not going to think about this anymore. So two weeks later, I'm walking through HHS downtown, and Lee, my social worker, calls. And I'm looking at my phone, and I'm thinking to myself, there's no reason for her to call unless she has something to say. And she did. She said, I found her. I've read her your letter and she's ecstatic. And I said, well, it would be great if I could get a letter back from her. I would love to, it was so cathartic for me to sit there and write what was in my heart. I would love to know what her thoughts are. And so she said, okay. I think she was probably gonna do that anyway. I thought I was so smart, but I'm sure I was just subscribing to a process that was already in place. And so Lee had had, had her write me a letter and another two weeks went by and Lee calls me back and she says, I have your letter, I can read it to you now or I can drop it in the mail. And I said, read it to me now, but not here. I know I'll cry. I can't do this in the office, so I raced outside. So I raced out to this park across the across from the office. I found a park bench where I could be alone, and Lee reads this letter. And Lee's got this angelic voice, super soft and sweet, really lovely. And basically, she serves as a proxy for my birth mother's voice, reading her words to me for the first time. And she says, again, that she was ecstatic to hear from me. That, you know, she told me a little bit about her life, that she had grown up on the eastern shore of Maryland, that she had long lived in Laurel, Maryland, which is immediately next door to Columbia. They're like neighbors. Um, That she had attended Hampton University. And that her father her uncle had also gone to Hampton and she said that she wanted to know me and that anytime the day or night I could call her and it was just such a, a warm feeling to have this person that you didn't know come out of this person that you didn't know and didn't know you were coming, be receptive to your surprise return. And so it was after that call that Lee gave me my birth mother Ann's phone number. And she said, I'm gonna give you her phone number and I'm gonna give you hers. And then it's up to you guys to be in touch with each other. And she left it up to us. So it was it was wild so lee has read my letter to me from my birth mother and coincidentally in the letter it says and tells me her birth date it was september 27th and i'm hearing this note on the phone on september 26th the day before her birthday And I stopped Lee when she was reading. I said, wait, 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 Lee, are you telling me her birthday is tomorrow? And she was like, yeah, I didn't really think about that. You're right, it is. And I was like, holy crap. I'm hearing her words the day before her birthday. And then at the end of the conversation, Lee gave me her phone number. I'm in touch with her before her birthday, it's crazy. And I wanted Anne to know right in that moment that we were connected and I had heard her words. And so I pulled out my phone, I put in her number, and I didn't know what I wanted to say, so I just texted, 36 years, dot, dot, dot. That's how old I was at the time. That's how long we had been apart. And I wanted her to know that this is the moment when I've now heard your words, and I have your number, and we are in touch. And she called me later that night, I was living in this house. I was out back at the barbecue grill. Fortunately, my other two kids were out of the house, and my wife had my son upstairs. And I was by myself. My phone rings, and I answered, and it was her. And Ann had this soft voice. She, You could sense the fear and trepidation and nervousness and excitement and... Everything, like it was just like her voice was cracking and she was, it was really, really cute more than anything else. And we just started talking. It was, and it was an instant rapport connection. And it felt so great because this person that had not even been a thought in my mind prior to my son's birth and the other coinciding events is now a real person in my mind and I'm speaking to her on the phone and we're connected and some of the first things we said to each other was listen we're good like you can call me anytime if you're curious about anything please reach out and she said again you can call me any time of the day or night whenever you want and it was just really really cute and Pardon me, I ended up uh, talking with her for probably 90 minutes. And as I'm speaking with her, I'm asking her all kinds of stuff. She says, I'm an open book. And I said, well, who's my birth father? And she names this guy who was a Detroit police officer. Keep in mind, she was in graduate school in Detroit. But... When she told me the story of what happened, I sensed the pain in her voice. She said that she had been in graduate school, she had gone to a singles party, and she met a guy whom she started dating. And while they were dating, he was unkind to her. And so she broke up with him. And it was after that, that she found out that she was pregnant. So she calls the police precinct to try to get in touch with him and share the news. And as she's speaking with the operator at the police precinct, she's, you know, asked to speak to the guy. And the operator says, Oh, yeah, I'll get him. Is this his wife calling? And that was when my birth mother found out that she had been in an extramarital affair and she's pregnant and she's in graduate school. And backstory her sister, older than herself, had also gone away gotten pregnant out of wedlock and had been vilified by their father. And he said, you get out of here and you go get married and you don't come back until you are. So with that history in her family, she now finds herself pregnant out of wedlock, away at college, and she's having one of those, oh, expletive moments. And so coincidentally, one of her best friends in life from University of Maryland Eastern Shore, where she grew up. It's this woman named Pat Kaya. And she goes by Shelly now. Shelly had just taken a job as a social worker here in Baltimore, Maryland. And I can only imagine that Ann called Pat one day and was just like, girl, I am in trouble. And she explains the thing. And Pat says, I'm a social worker here. We'll get you here, get you on public assistance get you an apartment, you can you know, continue to carry the baby and we'll put the baby up for adoption and we'll just try our best to smooth this whole thing over. So they hatched this plan. Anne continues to grow as a pregnant woman, but it's right at the end of her graduate studies. So she's you know, going into spring wearing oversized clothes and winter coats and things like that that are completely inappropriate for the weather, but she's trying to hide her pregnancy. She leaves Detroit. She doesn't walk across the stage for her graduate degree or whatever. She just splits, and comes straight to Baltimore. And she had a little apartment, she told me, and she said she used to walk around her little apartment for exercise, and she stayed inside. What, what I didn't realize when I met her, I met her as an old gray-haired woman. She was a fiery redhead, light-skinned black woman with bright red hair, And she's in Baltimore, which is not super far from anybody who's coming in town from Maryland's eastern shore. If you're coming to the other part of Maryland, you're coming through Baltimore. So this redhead woman could be recognized, which is why she stayed in her apartment. She didn't want people to know that she had left Detroit and and she was in Maryland. Maryland's Baltimore super close to where her hometown is. And if they knew she was there, they would want to see her. So her cover story was that she went to Buffalo, New York, I think, with one of her other graduate school friends, and she was living up there. And so what they would do is whenever Ann's parents would call Buffalo looking for Anne, the roommate that she was supposedly living with would say, Oh, she's out of the grocery store. She's out doing the and she would immediately call Baltimore and say, Girl, your parents are looking for you. You better call them. And so she would call her parents from Baltimore to Maryland. And her parents, for a long time, didn't know that she was in Baltimore. One day she goes out for groceries and light-skinned, redhead woman, highly recognizable from anybody who knows her, is walking down the street pregnant and she hears her name, Ann. She ignores it. Ann Sullivan, I know that's you over there. She was like, oh. she said, as fast as my little fat legs would take me, I raced back to my apartment, I dashed inside, and I went straight upstairs and I didn't come out. What ended up happening was this guy who did in fact know her went back home to Maryland's eastern shore and told his mom, I think I saw Ann Sullivan in Baltimore, and it looked like she was pregnant. And his mom told Ann's mom, and Ann's mom never said anything to her about it, and I guess she let her continue the ruse of being in New York, and apparently one day, Ann's mom, my maternal grandmother, said to someone, I guess I have a grandchild out there somewhere, so that I raised that to say, like, it's not just about my adoption. There's all of these other branches on the story of how the adoption impacts the family, the community, the friends and all of this other stuff. So I sensed all of this pain in Anne's voice when she describes the situation of her accidental pregnancy. And I said, I'm not finding this guy. I, He didn't want to be involved with her when I was conceived. I have no need to find him now. There's just nothing there and as I was speaking with Anne about her the rest of her life, I said, well, you know, did you have any other kids? She said, no. And she said that she had de- delivered me via cesarean section. And she told me that um, she was currently living in Laurel, which from my house now is only 30 minutes up the road. And I said, that's amazing. I said, what do you do for a living? And she says, well, I'm a federal librarian. And I asked her where she worked and she said she worked at the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA right down in D.C. And I said, well, that's a tough commute from the north down into D.C. How do you get to work every day? Keep in mind, I'm working at HHS downtown as well. She says, I get on the train and I ride into Union Station and then I get off and I get on the D.C. metro. And I said, well, where do you get off? She says, I get off at L'Enfant Plaza. And I said, shut up, me too. We're getting off at the same metro stop because when she gets off she goes this way to the faa and i get off and i go that way to hhs we're two blocks away from each other i'm learning all of this the night i got her phone number and the night before her birthday so i decide there's no way i'm not going to find this woman tomorrow for her birthday we're in touch she works two blocks away Too much is going right. We've got a rapport. I'm gonna go find her. So I went to work and managed to concentrate. And in an ironic twist, the first part of my morning that day of our reunion, I spent at a meeting with a whole bunch of people from Michigan, Detroit. And this Michigan healthcare organization is talking about all these wonderful things, and I'm listening to everything that everybody's saying, and I'm concentrating and I wasn't at all distracted by what it was that they were saying, thinking about the fact that I'm going to go reunite with my biological mother, you know, in a couple of hours. And that Detroit thing will come back a little bit later. So I get up at lunch and I go out, hop in a cab and I go over to the FAA. I go into the front desk and the security guard, you know, clears me through, I clear my pockets, put myself back together. And she's, got me at the security desk, and she says, who are you here to see? I said, I'm here to see Ann Sullivan. She said, what's her number? I said, I don't know. I've, I've never met her before. And And I said, I'm in my head now. And I was like, oh, crap. That sounded super weird. You need to fix that. I said, it might interest you to know that she's my birth mother, and I'm meeting her for the first time right now. And the guard looks up at me like, oh, my God. This guard takes, like, people through all the time, and they're all just like, One more meeting of a suit, going to meet somebody else. And this person is coming in for this momentous occasion to find his birth mother in her building. And so she looks up Ann in the directory and she dials the number and she picks up the phone and she says, there's a Mr. Davis here to see you. And then she goes, and she hangs up the phone. And I said, why did you gasp? And she goes, cause she gasped. And I was like, uh oh, like this is real. It was crazy. So the guard says, you just go over there to that elevator, go down. When you come off, turn right and go to the end of the hallway. Her office is down there. And so I'm in a tie, suit and tie. I'm standing in the elevator. There's a reflective door and I'm like fixing myself, trying to make sure that I am absolutely perfect for my first impression. What you don't know is in my introductory letter that I wrote to myself, I gave a picture of myself and my wife on our wedding day, and maybe that picture right there of myself and my son so that she would know she had a grandson. So she knows what I look like. I've only heard her letter over the phone. I have no idea who I'm looking for. The elevator door opens. And this woman is standing there looking at me with this holy crap look on her face. Because the guy who wrote to her and sent him a picture of herself is now standing before her. And I just burst into tears. I dove on her, gave her a huge hug. I said, happy birthday. And she said it was the best birthday she'd ever had. And we just stood there looking at each other because as I'm sure you can imagine, I looked like my birth mother. And I'm saying, oh my God, this is my face on another person. And I could see that same look on her face like, holy mackerel, this guy looks just like me. And she said, what are you doing for lunch? And I said, I'm here to see you. So we went upstairs. We went across the street. We grabbed lunch and you know we're looking at the menu and I'm looking over at her like, she's really there. This is really happening. We sat down, we had a wonderful lunch. We sat across from each other and we talked and talked and talked. I can't tell you a single thing she said. I was just picking her face apart and marveling at this moment, it was unreal. And so we got up from lunch Keep in mind, we're across the street from her office. The L'Enfant Plaza Metro is like 10 steps to our side. I gave her a big hug and I said, listen, we're good. Don't worry, we're fine. Anytime you wanna talk, you wanna chat, you wanna connect, we can. And that started a wonderful series of those kinds of lunches and coffees I worked two blocks from her, and so I would look down at my phone and see I had an opening opening on my calendar, and I would send her a quick text. Hey, you want to get together and have coffee? We had more coffees and lunches just because we were able to be, we were so close to each other. It was unreal, and I have often joked that it was a little bit like dating because there's this person that you really care about, that you're thinking about all the time and you wanna know what they're thinking about, and you've got questions for them, and you wonder when you're gonna to get together with them. It was, it, was, it was quite literally like falling in love, but this is a birth mother that you haven't known for more than 30 years that you're getting to know. It was wildly fascinating. So we kept our relationship just between us for a while. We didn't introduce one another to extended parts of our family. But I came home and I told my wife, Michelle, about the whole thing. And uh, she was, you know, super happy for me. It was a hugely momentous moment in my life. And um, I, we decided after about two weeks of knowing each other, it was about a month of really getting to know just one another, that we would introduce one another to each other. So I asked her one day, I said, do you want to meet your grandson? And she said, oh, I would like that. I said, well, we have to figure out what he's gonna call you. And so she said, well, I'd never really thought about that. I said, well, how about Grandma Anne? And she said, oh, I like that. So Grandma Anne came over one day and she parked out front and in anticipation of her arrival, I watched out the window to see her coming. And it was funny because I could see her sort of talking to herself about what she was about to experience. My son, Seth, was maybe three at the time. So a great age, mobile, interactive, hilarious. Everything turns into a game. So I go to the door and I, and I open it and I say, hey, Seth, come here, buddy. I want you to meet Grandma Ann. He's three, he doesn't know who this stranger is. So he sneaks up behind my leg and without missing a beat, she leans over and she says, I see you back there, and he leans the other way. And she said, she leans that way too. And then they go back and forth. And this game is happening around me that I didn't even set up. And I say, like, those two are gonna be just fine. And so she comes in and she snuggles him up and she reads him a book, and we went to one of my kids' schools and uh, and you know, there was a fall fair. And I've got this great picture of him in the fall leaves, holding him up. She's holding him up to a tree to get a leaf. And it's like this fantastic moment of my connection with her and her connection to the generation that I have created as a result of her bringing me into this world. It really, really fantastic. And then another couple of weeks went by and she introduced me to her older sister, Adeline, and my cousin, Marianne. Mary Ann is the product of that pregnancy that I told you about before where Adeline had gotten pregnant and come home um, out of wedlock, etc. And so there were these two cousins who were the single children of two mothers who had, you know, gotten pregnant out of accidental circumstances. And it was amazing. You know, I got to know Mary Ann and, and her family and and the whole reunion experience with Ann was just really, really wonderful. Really wow. cool.
0: Yeah, this it's incredible. You know something that struck me. I could imagine your story going a different direction. One thing I've I've been really intimately connected to is the power of forgiveness. Mm-hmm. And in stories, so many times people feel like someone's wronged them, mm-hmm. and over time they come to, like you said, empathize with that person's situation. And what I call real, like true forgiveness is that they no longer feel like the person wronged them anymore. That's not the story anymore. Mm-hmm. They feel like a situation had happened and sure, things could have gone differently and they wish that it would have gone differently, but they see that as an event now mm-hmm. and not, not something another person did to them. Yeah. In your story, I never heard, is, was there ever a time where you felt like your biological mother did like hurt you or wronged no. you?
1: I had, there was a lot of self-talk and preparation for going down this journey of trying to find her. And there was quite literally a moment when I was walking past the bathroom mirror and I stopped and I looked in the mirror and I said, are you doing this for the right reason? Because again, my adoptive mother is suffering mental illness. I'm losing her for all intents and purposes. And I've had this moment of my son's birth catalyzing my desire to search for my birth mother, but I had to really sit and think, am I trying to find this woman because I'm losing this woman or do I wanna know her because I need to know? And that was an incredibly powerful moment of reconciling that I am doing this for the right reason, regardless of whether I was for, again, losing my mom to mental illness. I would still wanna know this piece. And once I got right with that, I was good. And I told myself, listen, you don't know what the circumstances are, so don't get all hung up on it. What's done is done, you've had a good life, it's time to move forward from here. And not everybody gets to do that because some people are adopted and it's not awesome. I was lucky. And it can be a real challenging thing to think through what it looks like to try to seek these people out who placed you for adoption into this negative circumstance of your life that you've now had to come forward from. I didn't have that, but many adopted people do.
0: So you can some people will take whatever the outcome was of their adoption and they will they will put the responsibility of that onto the parents who put them who put them up for
1: adoption. Yeah, that's right. That it's really sense. tough. And and but some people will focus quite literally on the adoptive parents, right? Some folks are able to parse out the fact that just because your biological parent placed you for adoption, they are not necessarily responsible for the actions of the people who did adopt you and you didn't have a, a good experience there. Some people are able to separate that those two things out. and And I think that's important because every one of these... Decision points along the way is in, is incredibly important to think through. I've I've I gave a speech recently where I said, you know, it's important for us to think about adoption versus abortion. Like currently in this political environment we're in, a lot of people will say, well, why don't you just adopt a baby? And you know, if you want to have a child, and they sort of conflate adoption and abortion, and unfortunately, they're not two sides of the same coin, it's coin. It's not adoption or abortion, it's I'm pregnant with a child, am I going to mother, be the parent to this child or am I gonna place the child for adoption? And then once you've made that decision, if you decided to place the child for, it's first, I'm sorry, it's am I going to carry this child or am I going to abort the child? That's your first decision. Once you've decided to carry the child, the second decision point is Am I going to be the child's parent or is someone else going to be the child's parent? So they're not two sides of the same coin. They're two completely different decision trees that will lead down different paths. And it's important for people to think that through. And this is something that the adoptee community is very focused on is making sure folks don't just say, oh, it's adoption or abortion. It's not. It's decision for life or not. And then with life, decision to parent or not do you
0: think that when people are making that first decision it might be useful for them to think about if i decide to carry
1: the child Mm -hmm. these are my options
0: yeah absolutely and i
1: think a lot of people do like it's a very natural bringing a life into this world is not just a simple thing it's not like going to the grocery store and deciding between two cereals you know what i mean like you're probably going to be fine with either one like this is a, a life and a person that's going to grow up one day and potentially have a lot of questions about the decisions you've made. And just being pregnant in general is very powerful and it creates, I think, a lot of introspection in a person. You're carrying another person in your body. And I think you I think women just naturally think through a lot of deep contemplative issues related to being the mother, not being the mother, what have you. Yeah
0: that's really um it's really powerful for me to hear the level of empathy and perspective taking that you have towards everyone in your story Mm -hmm. you you really are able to see you know your story you're intimately connected to, Mm -hmm. as evidenced by the fact that when you tell the story with words it captivates you just like it's captivating me Mm -hmm. um and you've probably told it a hundred times and it still captivates you and even though you're immersed in that story, you're able to see all the different perspectives. And I assume have insights over iterations of the story where you see even more of those perspectives. Mm-hmm. That's, really, that's really powerful.
1: Yeah, and it's important, like I said before, you can't, we can't pass judgment on things that we don't know the facts of. I didn't know why she placed me for adoption. So how could I be mad at her until she tells me something to be mad at? You know what I mean? Like it just, that wouldn't be fair and it would end up tainting the relationship if I walked in with anger versus open-mindedness. Let me hear what you have to say, and then I'll be the judge of how I feel about it. And, and I think that's an important thing for most people in a variety of situations, right? You just don't feel like you need to reach in and go in with your preconceived notion when you haven't informed yourself about the various aspects of this situation and the angles therein. So this, again, goes back to what I continue to say. Empathy is super important, but you also have to educate yourself about a situation to know enough to make a judgment. A snap judgment doesn't do anybody any good. You have to sort of get informed and and figure out your path forward from there.
0: I'd like to zoom out for a second. Sure. Taking your story. One of the things that we're interested in as part of this project is we've got a hypothesis that America is in an identity crisis, Mm -hmm. that as a society, there's a lot of different stories about who or what America is, who and what America could become, and it's created this crisis point where people are desperately seeking a solution. They're seeking certainty about what that should be, but people are coming to different answers. Mm -hmm. and it's hard to figure out where do we go to start to work together to integrate society in Mm -hmm. a really positive way and feel momentum in a positive way forward. And I think your story can speak to that, and I'd be curious about your perspective. So when you think about the story that you had, I just ask you, now you're obviously coming out of that context When you look at America right now, say the last 10 years, if you had to title the chapter of the last 10 years of America, Mm. from your experience, what do you think you'd title it?
1: Wow. Um, The first thing that comes to mind for the last 10 years is driving towards division, right? It feels like there's been mounting momentum towards people moving in opposite directions. And it's challenging for a variety of reasons. There's The internet has democratized the ability for people to share information and create content. And so it's hard for people to parse out what's fact from fiction. And it it has muddied the waters in a variety of areas and i think that there's a lot of work to be done in political circles where you can have a difference of opinion and not necessarily feel like the other side is so wrong that they needs to be they need to be vilified i think there's a difference between recognizing that you have a difference of opinions. It goes back to what I said about graduate school. We may need some of the same things in the middle. You just may need different pieces of that same thing. And I feel as though we've lost a lot of that ability to just talk to each other, agree to disagree, but try to find amicable solutions without walking away with hatred for the other team. You know, they've got reasons and experiences that have brought them to their opinions and their They're, you know, whatever they're trying to accomplish. However, it's not wrong. It's just where they come from. But they also need to be in a position of recognizing the same thing about your side. Here's where I'm coming to this from. Now, what's in the middle? How do we work this together? I think about, I learned that on Capitol Hill, the senators used to disagree on the floor, but go out to dinner at night. And I... I can't even imagine that that's happening right now. Right. And they would, but they would talk about their differences and be friends, genuine friends with each other, even though they were across the aisle from one another. And I feel like a lot more of that reaching across to talk to other people is super important, but it's not happening as much as it needs to. And. And it's tough. There's a lot of folks who they're like, listen, that those folks have said some crazy stuff and I'm not trying to hear them anymore. We're off on this journey. And unfortunately, that sort of continues to perpetuate this momentum, this drive towards division that's continues to grow.
0: Outside of like looking out on America, in your own life, have you experienced this division over the last 10 years?
1: more from you know so here in Maryland you know we're a fairly democratic state and we've got a lot of like-minded people around us it's funny that you when i drive out of this area and i go out towards northern virginia and out into more rural areas you can see how the division between us and that region changes And another thing that has happened is, I haven't told you this, but I do a podcast. And on the podcast, I interview people from across the country and around the world. And I've had folks tell me that they have experienced it in their own families. So the podcast is, it's called Who Am I Really? I interview other adopted people about their journey through adoption and their own attempt to find their biological family members. And what I've heard from some people is, there's something called transracial adoptee. So a white parent might adopt an Asian, Latino, African-American child. That's a transracial adoption. And sometimes what happens is that transracial adoptee grows, in, uh, grows up in a predominantly white community. And sometimes that community falls into a certain political ideology that that adoptee doesn't identify with as a person of color. And so what they will realize as the adopted person is I am seriously at odds with my parents and my community over some of these political ideologies that we don't agree on. And it creates serious tension in the family. So while I haven't necessarily experienced it in my own family, and it, but I have seen it in my life among colleagues, um, and I've heard it from adoptees. So, for example, I know a colleague that voted in a way that I would not have voted as a man of color, but I know that it happened because their family owns a business and the way that they voted was myopic towards the benefit of being business owners without, and they may have thought about this, but it was very self-centered versus thinking on a more grand scale, how does this vote crop up somebody who is not necessarily looking for equality and fairness among races and socioeconomic strata, et cetera. So I've seen it in different places. I just haven't experienced it in my own home and in my immediate, in my family or extended family.
0: That's really powerful because when you were saying that, I started thinking about the theme of empathy that we've been talking about and how for them, they don't actually have perhaps the motivation to, to turn and look beyond what you said, you used the word myopic. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a specific problem in life that they're trying to solve and they're looking for who's going to help them solve that problem. Right. And they almost get tunnel vision. It's like, it's like in the negotiation mm-hmm. that they're stuck like, I need the orange peel. Mm-hmm. So who's going to give me an orange peel?
1: Right.
0: And it's not bad necessarily that they, you know, at least to them, it's not bad that they want orange peels. Right. But at the same time, that person might be throwing away the orange course. <laughs> yeah,
1: that's exactly right. That's the problem.
0: <laughs> and that that's really fascinating to me. And that's the question. Our goal is to heal the divide. I look at it as if we go 10, 20, 30 years now, what I'd rather try to find a way to make it better. Mm-hmm. Um, do you think we can make it better?
1: I do. I do because ultimately we're all human. We need each other regardless of what we look like and regardless of what our political ideologies are. We all need each other. Listen, I've often thought of this. If I go into the hospital, I need blood regardless of who it comes from. It does not matter. Therefore, we're all in the same family. And we have to find the ways to get along. It's, it's not impossible. I think of a story that my dad told me one time. He used to be friends with a professional basketball player who puts on a basketball camp. And this guy put on this camp and he had brought over kids from the Middle East. And they were from two warring factions, basically. I'm not going to get this right, but it was like two sides of the Gaza Strip or something like that but they're kids. So when they got over here, they weren't interested in battling with each other. They were athletes who wanted to compete. And the hatred that they had for one another was taught by their parents on each side of the divide. We hate those people over there and you hate those people over there. But when you take them out of those environments and you put them on the court together, they're just kids. They just want to get along. Hatred is something we learn It's not something that's inherent to any one of us. And this is something that I think we need to focus a lot on is this idea that we're teaching one another not to like each other instead of trying to examine how it is that we are alike and how we're different and finding commonalities with one another and like appreciating our differences. You know what I'm saying? You have probably learned so much from me sitting here in Maryland that you have never could have expected would come out of my mouth, but it's because we've taken the opportunity to sit here and do this that we're exchanging ideas. You're going to walk out of here and be four states away and bring up something that I've said to someone else in another environment. You're going to say, I sat with this guy in Maryland and he said this. What do you think of that, right? It's going to resonate and you're going to do it again and again. And it has a magnifying effect of... One person says it to another and another person says it to another and it it amplifies. So I think there's a lot of work we can do to have more what I'll call courageous conversations to try to invite people in to be around the same table and accept one another's differences, but like agree to talk about it.
0: I love that. When I look at it is I can't guarantee that anybody I sit down with, like I would be able to be friends with them. But here's what I do know for sure. Mm. If I live my life with the goal of I will have empathy and care for everyone, even the worst of people, that at least motivates me to sit down and try. Mm -hmm. And I I have yet to sit down. I've sat down with everything from, you know, I've sat down with a polyamorous anarchist couple to the most conservative, diehard Donald Trump was like the ideal best president to everything in between and, and around mm-hmm. and so far i've been able to see love and care and compassion come from those people mm-hmm. i've seen very little hatred mm-hmm. i've seen a lot of misunderstanding, like seeing things very differently i've seen no hatred so far mm-hmm. um i know it exists but yep. I've, I, maybe they wouldn't let me in their living room <laughs> uh, but and that's something that i'm with you on that courageous conversations i like that yeah all right, well, let's hear about the rekindling of Woo. your biological father. Let's, let's do
1: it. So like I said, I asked Anne who my biological father was. She told me the story of this cop in Detroit who was not awesome to her. She fled Detroit. She, she told me she never went back to Detroit. If she even had a connecting flight, to go somewhere else, she would not connect in Detroit. She was never going back there. Interesting, just quick side note before I get to my birth father, I mentioned reuniting with her and the day of that reunification, being with a bunch of people from Michigan. So I'm at HHS, I'm working in an office that's focused on electronic health record adoption and that office is having events around the country to celebrate and sort of uplift efforts to create digital records for healthcare. We're trying to introduce efficiency and knowledge transfer and better care and reduce costs and just generally make life better in the ways that digital records can do as they have done for so many other parts of our lives. Coincidentally, I was the point person for the big boss's trip to Detroit. So we go to Detroit And I'm in the room with all of these healthcare IT focused individuals who happened to to be in the room the morning that I went to reunite with Ann. And I'm sitting there at this event with my boss and I'm looking at all these people around the room and I'm trying to figure out why do I feel so connected to these people? Like I just, it felt so familiar. And so it wasn't warm. It just Felt comfortable. And it finally hit me when the event was over. I was like, oh, these are the folks that were I was with the day I went to meet Ann. And here I am in their home state, and holy crap, I'm in Detroit. This is where I was conceived. I couldn't believe it. I called Ann. Ann, guess where I am? I don't know where you are, Damon. Fair. I'm in Detroit. I gotta go, click, and she hangs up. And I said, wow, I wonder what just happened. So I gave her some time. Ann and I had spoken pretty much every day leading up to that trip. We didn't talk for two days. And I I called her, I said, are you doing okay? And she says, you know, I just, I freaked out when you called and said you were in Detroit. I didn't know why you were there. And I was worried that you would see somebody that you thought you were related to. And and my mind, just racing, I didn't know what to do. And it just hadn't hit me how the gravity of that city on our story and the the sort of unfairness of me sharing that I was going to be in that city and calling her from there as a surprise. Fortunately, it was mundane but I appreciated her sharing that it was really traumatic for me. So unfortunately, six years after Ann and I reunited, she passed away. She retired from federal service. She, had, she was a very spiritual woman and she moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico, bought a house. First house she had ever purchased her entire life was after our reunion and after we retired. I say that because her sister told me later that after I came back and found Anne, it was like she came back to life. She said it was like a flower that had gotten water poured on it. I thought it was so cool. So Anne has found this reinvigorated life. She's moved to Santa Fe. She buys this house. She moves in December. I visit her in March, and she died in September before her birthday. And so... um, after she passed away, my curiosity got the best of me. I hadn't wanted to fi- find this guy before then, but it was after her passing that I realized I can't hurt her by fi- finding this person. And you know, I know the one plus one of the math of conception, and it takes two people to, for another person to walk the earth. I want to know who this other person is, so I decide to try to find this guy search for his name, locate this police officer, reach out to him, and I get him on the phone. And we have no rapport whatsoever, no connection at all. And I was like, well, I don't need to meet this dude. Like, I don't even like this guy, right? And he did all kinds of crazy stuff. He says, I'm going to rent a camper, and I'm going to drive across the country to come meet you. And I had this picture of, I don't know if you've ever seen National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation where uncle so-and-so pulls up in his camper and it's this horrible thing (laughs) sitting out in front of the house and he's dumping his sewage (laughs) into the, I had this vision of this guy coming to my house and I was like, what have I done? Fortunately, it never happened. I let the relationship die. I didn't seek him out anymore. To cut through that piece of the story, one day, Uh, I told him I wanted to meet him and he said, are you sure I'm the guy? And I said, well, I kind of know how this works. And she said, you're the guy. So I think so. And he writes me a letter a while later and he says, Mr. Davis, I'm not the guy. And I was like, I don't know how you know this, but wow, you just signed off from like potentially getting to know your son. That's crazy. And you've said, like, yeah, I'm not the guy. I just, I couldn't fathom it. And I've always wondered, you know, he was an old police officer. I wondered, did that guy have me followed and, like, take some fork I used at a restaurant and get a DNA test done on it or something? I, yeah, that's the only thing I could think of. So I was sad, man. I was like, damn, this dude, I'm a good guy, and this guy doesn't want to get to know me. That kind of sucks. And I sat with that for a while, and I realized, you know, I might I I may just have to be good with this piece of my story. My birth mother and that reunion was amazing, I'ma let it be what it is. So I started to get right with that in my head and accept it. And coincidentally, my mother-in-law who lives in Los Angeles, her name is Susan, is also adopted. Zero interest in finding any of her biological relatives and doesn't care, like didn't care at all what her heritage was. Susan is Susan, she's perfectly comfortable in her skin. She didn't wanna know any of that stuff. My sister-in-law, Stephanie, who is a millennial, uh, realizes, hey, wait, mom's adopted, and we can do ancestry DNA. Let's all do DNA tests. And I was like, that's a great idea. We'll learn about Susan, and I'll learn about Susan as it applies to my wife, Michelle, and therefore what their contribution is to our son, Seth, for which I only know my contribution, not necessarily the lineage of what is inside my son, right? So we do this DNA test, all of our results come back. Um, Coincidentally, Ann and I had done a 23andMe DNA test already. So I already saw the cultural relations and all this. I was familiar with my DNA. We just did it just to sort of confirm that it was really us, even though we knew it was really a connection. So I wasn't so interested in my DNA results when they came back from Ancestry DNA, But when Michelle's and Seth came back, I was super interested And they're two completely different platforms. They present different bodies of data in different ways. It's just really interesting to be on both. So I'm looking through Michelle's and Seth's and I see some fascinating stuff. And I was like, well, I should go look at my DNA over here. It's, they probably present some cool things. And I'm looking through the results and they list your results in order of their proximity to you. Biological matches and then like first cousins and second and third and fifth, you can get all the way down to sixth, eighth, 10th, whatever. And so I'm looking at my results, and in the very first line, of course, Seth is my biological relative. He's right there on the line, and there's another line for a different person. And I'm thinking to myself, who the hell is this other person? And when I click on the link to open up the details, the initials of the individual are not the initials of the man that Ann identified as my biological father. It's completely different initials. And I realized Anne went to her grave thinking that my biological father was one person when in fact it's this guy right here. I just need to figure out who this dude is. <laughs> so I reach out. Ancestry DNA allows you to send messages to people and say, hey, it looks like we're connected. We should talk. I did that. Hey, looks like I'm connected with you. I'd love to chat. And I could see that this account is administered by someone else. They are the owner of the account. They've just created the, the whole family tree. No answer. I wrote back. Hey, listen. I'm adopted. This says, WW is your biological father. I would love to know more about this person. I said, I'm not interested in disrupting anybody's life. But this is really important to me, and we can talk, we can keep it confidential if you need, but I kind of need to know this. I'm driving along one day, I get a call, and I recognize that this number is from one of the locations on my family tree. My family tree is out of Kentucky, and I can see it's a Kentucky number, and I answered immediately, pulled over. I start talking to this woman, and she says that this is a white woman she says that she asks me to sort of tell me a little bit about her, my story, and I told her. And she says, I know who your birth father is, and he's never been a cop in Detroit. As a matter of fact, we're having a family reunion in next month, and I expect to see him there. And if you want, I can talk to him about this. So, yeah. She proceeds to tell me that this family has lived in Kentucky forever, and that they were doing genealogy in their family, and they started to see that their family tree branched out into the black community, and so they started to try to find all of these relatives of theirs to understand more about this connection, and it was through their research that they discovered my birth father is one of their relatives. So. As they're doing their research, they get everybody to submit a DNA sample. And their ultimate goal is to try to figure out who the slave was that their slave owner had been with to create this entire branch of their family tree that they didn't know. And my birth father and therefore myself are on their tree. So it was a fascinating exploration of like, every history lesson I've ever had in school, falling into my actual life and slavery in America. It was absolutely crazy. So I have this amazing conversation with this woman. She says she's gonna see my birth father. She'll contact me after they have this family reunion. Time goes by, family reunion passes. I don't hear anything from her. Turns out he didn't show up. So I said, well, listen, why do we do this? If you would be so kind, could I mail you a letter and introduce myself and you send it to him? She said, sure. And it was funny because I wrote this letter and it was such a different context than this one that I'm sending to Anne to introduce myself. I'm her son. I know that she knows I'm in the world. I am hopeful that she wants to know me and I'm hopeful to reconnect with her. And I'm I'm born of her body, there's that connection. I'm reaching out to this guy to say, I have found my birth mother. She has identified a different guy. It turned out it wasn't him, and I have now found you. I'm hopeful that you'd like to talk. Totally different letters. Fortunately, he said yes. So she sends the letter off, he gets the letter, he eventually calls me. And we get on the phone and I tell him the whole story. There were points where he was listening so intently. I had to ask him, are you still there? I mean, he was just so quiet listening to the whole thing. But he was receptive. When I talked to Bill, who lived in Las Vegas, lives. Bill was 86 years old when I found him. Because Ann had thought that my birth father was someone else, Bill didn't know that I existed. He's 86 years old, and this 40-something-year-old son is coming out of the woodwork and identifying himself. Can you imagine? This prior chapter of your life's history has come back to rewrite itself from the days when he was a young man in graduate school in Detroit. Isn't that crazy? So, coincidentally... I'm speaking with Bill for the first time. I've told him my whole story. He's open to chatting with me. He lives in Las Vegas, and coincidentally, the very next day, Michelle, Seth, and I are leaving for Los Angeles. And I was like, listen, Bill, we're going to be in your neighborhood. Like, if you want to, why don't we get together? And he said, sure. You know, let's get in touch when you get here and see if we can figure things out. So Michelle, Seth, and I took a day trip Flew to Las Vegas and met my birth father for the first time. And it was funny. 86 years old. He's not like super on his phone or whatever. And so, um, you know, I knew I needed to call him. I couldn't just text him and give him progress. So I waited until after we got off the flight to get in touch with him. And my son, young. Like we'd just been on a flight, I wanted to make sure he got to the bathroom and got some food, make sure his blood sugar was up so he would be like open and receptive to meeting his, you know, birth grandfather. And so we took our time getting off the plane, getting to the bathroom, getting a a bite of food and stuff, and then moving down to like the baggage claim area. And it took us so long that we were the last people to get to the baggage claim for our flight such that it was darn near empty. And there's this older black man sitting over there by himself on an adjacent baggage claim where he can see the the environment. And I was like, that's gotta be him. So I walked over to him and I said, excuse me, are you Bill? And he leans over he reaches for his wallet, pulls out his ID and he reads it and he goes, well, this says I am, and I just burst out laughing. (laughs) Now, you know, it was just a moment where I was like, I'm going to like this guy. Like, he's a good dude. And it was funny also because Michelle and Seth hung back while Bill and I walked out sort of shoulder to shoulder, leaving the airport. And, you know, Seth, who's still young, recognized the gravity of this situation. And Michelle told me later that Seth tugged on her shirt and he looked up at her. He said, Mom. I'm kind of freaking out right now. This is really cute. So we went over to Bill's house, and we sat, and we had a wonderful conversation. And coincidentally, Bill is a genealogist. And I say coincidentally because Anne was a genealogist. So to backtrack, when I met Anne, it was the day before her birthday, September 27th. I got, I, I I was her gift when I returned. I didn't get her anything, I just showed up. My birthday is October 14th, roughly two weeks later. So when she saw me on my birthday, when on our reunion on October 14th, she brings me this bag, and it's got this big purple book in it. And I opened the book, and it's got pictures from her life that were so just incredible to see. You see this young woman uh, you know, and then she goes to college, and then she's there's a picture of her pregnant with me at a monument in Detroit, and then you flip to some of the final pages, and she has our entire family history mapped out as again back to the days of slavery in this country. It was crazy. Now I'm sitting at Bill's kitchen table, and he's showing me pictures of himself as a young man, and I'm looking at this guy. And I'm thinking, Jesus, this is my face on another person. This is unbelievable. And then he pulls out his records. And he, too, has documented our family's history all the way back to the days of slavery in this country. So Michelle has said to me jokingly, you know, I've known my family my entire life. And you've just met these people. And you know more about your entire family history than I do. It was fascinating. And what's also interesting is I was an only child in adoption and never had any other children. And Bill never had any other children that we know of. I'm an only child of four parents. Two of them are genealogists. There's only one child to pass down this history to. I got two branches of family history handed to me in a course of a couple of years All because I went on this reunion journey to try to find these people. And again, get the stories, get the pictures, get all of this context that I didn't have previously. So uh, it's that reunion has been amazing. You know, recently my adoptive mother, Veronica, passed away. And I would frequently call Bill and give him updates. and, And I would call him just to say hi. And one of the first questions he would ask me is, How's mom? And I would tell him how she's doing, her deterioration, what her medical issues were, things along those lines. And he was with me right through when she passed away. Like, I called him when she died. And as a matter of fact, he he joked with me. He was pissed. He said, what took you so long to call me? I I needed some days to sort of wrap my mind around her death. And I called him like three days after she had died. He like, what took you so long to call me? but I thought it was remarkable. Like he wanted to be there for me. This guy didn't even know I existed and he wanted to be there for me, it was really amazing. So So that is the other piece of my reunion journey. What it ended up translating into was really interesting as well. Um, I would tell this story to people and occasionally I would run into another adoptee and they would say, oh my God, that's incredible. But that'll never happen to me. Mm-hmm. Why? Why do you say that? Well, my adoptive parents don't want me to search. I've found my biological family and they don't wanna know me. The state where I was born, those adoption records are closed and I can never get access to them. And I started to realize I had lived this incredible, Reunion experience. But mine was only one story among millions of adoptee stories. And I realized too that I was subscribing to what the common narrative of adoption was that a child is rescued from some horrible circumstance, brought into an amazing family, and that when reunion happens, everybody's happy. It's not the case. I've taken to saying that there are. Amazing adoptions and awful reunions. There are terrible adoptions and incredible reunions and everything in between. You start to change the mix and you make me a transracial adoptee and put me in, say, Columbus, Ohio, and my story changes. You make me, you know, an uh, international adoptee from Asia, from Africa, and transplant me to the south, or to Miami, or to LA, and my story changes. And again, depending on how awesome or awful the adoption was, how terrible or incredible the reunion was, those are all factors in every adoptee's journey. And it's religious, it's sexual identity, it's, you know, you throw in any factor in society, and every adoptee story is different. And it was when I realized that that I I decided I wanted to help those stories to be told. So that was when I started the Who Am I Really podcast. Again, I interview adoptees about their stories of adoption and their journey to try to find their biological family members. And they're a fascinating array of stories. Some of them are filled with joy and hope. Some of them are just filled with tragedy and you just think to yourself, how can other humans do this to another person, especially a child? And you hear a lot of strength. There's a lot of people that'll tell you, you know, I've been through a lot, but I'm doing okay now. I've, I've dealt with that. I've gotten therapy for that. I have put that behind me. Um, that's water under the bridge. I'm stronger for what I've gone through, even if they would never wish it on another person. So, the podcast has been incredibly educational and eye opening for me because I get to do what you're doing, hear stories from across the country, around the world, of what adoption is like from different individuals. And it's been absolutely fascinating. It's quite literally some of the most fulfilling work I've ever done, you know? And it's like my W 2 job pays for me to be able to do this. Like, I do this. Not for monetization, but to be part of the democratization of this information out to other people so that folks get to hear, like, this is what adoption really is. It's not what you think of it as. There's, there's a lot of nuance to it, and it's important for us to be conscious of what it means. A core value I live my life by is empathy. I try my best to think about what someone else's situation is And try to understand how they may have arrived at their opinions, their actions, based on their experiences and their circumstances. And the podcast has been an amazing view into doing that. And has really helped me exercise that empathy muscle a lot more. Because I've talked with people across the aisle of different colors, of different gender identities, of amazing adoption experiences and terrible adoption experiences, etc. And it has forced me to be in a position of considering someone else's life experience and just respecting it. There's nothing I can do about it, but being empathetic to why they might be an angry adoptee or why they may be an advocate in the adoption space or why they might be A podcaster like myself that's helping to get these stories out there's a reason why people reach the point that they do and i think it's incredibly important for us to sort of recognize like you and i didn't just get to this moment without a history and a set of experiences and and recognizing that that is how we get to be who we are is incredibly important so that's how i think of things